This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. One of the things we have been missing is events that bring all kinds of people together, events that help to raise money for all kinds of different organizations. We have seen so many things happen virtually. And you know what? A lot of those virtual events have worked out incredibly well. The generosity that we've seen through this pandemic has been outstanding. We now get to talk about MS Bike. It's something that comes up on an annual basis, allows you to ride all kinds of kilometers, allows you to support Canadians living with multiple sclerosis. And we happen to have an MS bike coming up in September. It's not necessarily going to be exactly how you may remember, say, an event from before the pandemic, but we're definitely getting closer. And that's the big key in all of this. Please welcome MS Ambassador Andrea Dowding, to London Live. Andrea, how's the day going? Hey, Mike, it's going really well. How are you doing? You know what? I can't complain because when I read through the details on MS Bike, things are starting to sound a little bit more normal. We're, we're taking those steps. This, this is a good thing, right? It's looking very positive, that's for sure, which is definitely great to see. Well, let's get to the details on this year's event, and then we can talk a little bit about you and your life and your experience as an MS ambassador. There's an online rally on September 18th that's taking place. What else do we need to know about the MS bike for 2021? Well, a couple things. Uh, There is the um, cross-country September 18th event, but there's also um, from the previously scheduled event dates for Grand Bend to London on July 24th, a lot of the, the participants, uh, myself and my family included, are actually going to be participating that day um, and biking our 150 kilometers. Um, as a whole, the MS Bike uh, Committee is encouraging anyone to participate in whichever way they can. Um, so whether it be cycling the 150 kilometers in two days or setting up separate events with amongst their own family and friends, whatever they can do, whatever small um, contribution they can make um, to celebrate and bring awareness to MS is most definitely encouraged. Um, There will be the online events and rallying on September 18th as well. And I know there's a lot of groups that are going to be going out and cycling that weekend. So we're kind of getting a two for one deal here this year. (laughs) <laughs> See, it's somehow it's even better than it otherwise could be. And you mentioned the way that you can do an MS bike and bike those 150 kilometers. It is still very pandemic friendly because you can do it with your family. People might hear that number, though, Andrea, 150. And then they hear not just 150 jujubes or M&Ms. Uh, <laughs> you hear 150 kilometers that come after that. And it sounds really daunting. But but you and your two daughters have been doing this. Can you tell us about the experience and, and maybe what riding 150 kilometers is actually like? Yeah, I most certainly can. And just to give you a heads up here, both of the girls are here with me as well in the background here. So if they want to chime in, they will. But uh, they're probably <laughs> going to let me take the lead here. Um, 
So 150 kilometers, uh, daunting, terrifying, most definitely. Uh, when I first um, decided to ride it, I had participated in the MS walk and someone said, hey, let's do that. And I'm like, no way, you're crazy. There's no way I'm getting on a bicycle from Grand Bend to London and then back. Um, let me tell you, it is challenging. It is daunting. But it's not that bad. <laughs> the MS Society and MS Committee make the event so incredible with um, their checkpoints along the way. You're not cycling 150 kilometers straight. Um, we have checkpoints along the way with amazing sponsors that have um, bathroom facilities and water and refreshments and food and entertainment. So you might do like 20 kilometers and then you take a break and then you do the rest. Or you might be awesome and do the whole 75 to 80 kilometers straight. It's uh, it's for all fitness levels, right? So, um, yeah, first year, terrified. But after that, I'm like, you know what? It, I It's you can do it. It's pretty amazing. And you'd be surprised at what you can do when you set your mind to it. Fantastic. Andrew Dowding joining us. MS Ambassador for the Multiple Sclerosis Society, MS Society Bike 2021, kind of happens in a couple of parts this year. You can get all kinds of information at mssociety.ca. Andrea, you mentioned your two daughters. They were really little when you were diagnosed. They were really young. Take us back to what it was like at that point, getting that diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Oh, boy. Um yeah, it was uh, pretty terrifying, to be honest. Um, so that would have put me at about 30 years old when uh, when I was diagnosed. And uh, I, a little background on MS, it's a deterioration of your nerves in your brain um, or on, on your spine. And when I was first diagnosed, I just had um, a single situation. So they didn't refer to it as multiple sclerosis. And then a couple months later, go back for an MRI, they find more. Uh, more lesions, they call them. And so now I'm classified as um, having MS. Um, when I first got my first diagnosis, I was like, it's okay, I'm healthy. I'll I'll pull through and see what happens here. Um, when I got that official diagnosis, it was hands down, um, get me involved in whatever medications, uh, procedures, or support that I can get into because my children are one in three. We have a long life. We both, we all have long lives ahead of us. And uh, I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to be there and to be mobile for them at the best capacity that I could. So, um, yeah, so that's, uh, that was kind of the start of it all, I suppose. Andrew, what have the last 10 years been like for you in trying to do exactly what you set out to do? It, it's been a challenge. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, MS is like a snowflake. What they call it the snowflake disease. Um, no one person with MS has the same symptoms. So it, it's scary when you're seeing other MS patients that are completely immobilized and paralyzed and um, can't walk, have difficulty speaking and so on. Um, my symptoms are a little bit uh, different. Um, I personally have numbness and fatigue and vertigo on a regular basis. I have to be very mindful of it. Um, there's a lot of times where I don't get to participate in everything that my girls would like me to participate because mom's just plain tired and needs to sleep. So, but these two girls have been amazing and you know what, they've been through a lot these last 10 years. Like it's one thing for me. Um, 
sometimes it's harder to see them have to deal with it too. But at the same time, sounds like you have two really strong daughters in behind you. I sure do. They're amazing. When you look at being able to accomplish something like the MS bike and and be able to do that, what is the feeling like when you get back from it? Oh, Mike, it's so emotional. <laughs> um, from start to finish, like the entire weekend is an emotional weekend. You pull in and there's 2,000 cars parked in the Grand Bend Motorplex uh, parking lot, and these people are all there to raise awareness and raise money for MS and to volunteer and to support the riders. And so that part is super emotional. And then you finish day one. It's great. You're, you're proud of yourself, but you know, you got to wake up and sit on that saddle again the next morning. And that is not an easy task. If there's anything I can warn any about anyone about it's that day two sitting on the seat again. Um, and, but when you get to the end at Grand Bend, I mean, my first year, my, my girls and my nieces and nephews all there with signs that they made and cheering you on with cowbells and all the, all the rest making all the noise. It's, uh, it's pretty emotional. Well, it's amazing to know your story, to hear the attitude that you carry with you each and every day and, and what you carry into the MS bike, because it's happening this year. It's happening kind of in two parts. So you've mapped out your routes already for what's coming up later this month. Yeah, we've, we've, uh, we have a tentative couple of maps, but uh, road construction is going to put a snag into that. So it looks like I'm back to the drawing board, but um, <laughs> we'll definitely be heading out uh, around like Elsie Craig, um, Poplar Hill, like Lobo Township and Kerwood. Mount Bridges, Strathroy. So we're gonna we're gonna hit it all up. So if you see us out there, by all means, don't be afraid to honk at us. If you see and myself and there's so many other riders that are participating, um, not just with our small group of six, but there's you'll see a lot out on the roads uh, uh, next weekend, July 24th and 25th. July 24th and 25th. So if you are in any of those places that Andrea just mentioned, get ready, get ready to wave, get ready to honk whatever you might find in the drawer from the last time you were able to honk and make some noise for something, get out there and help out. Or you can even map out your own route. And again, you can go to mssociety.ca for all kinds of information. Andrea, thank you so much for being who you are and thanks for the time. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time for us today. We'll talk soon. Good luck with the bike. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's Andrea Dowding. Andrea is an MS ambassador. Diagnosed 10 years ago at the time. Her daughters are one and three. And you wonder, what is this going to mean? How is this going to impact you? And that's one of the toughest parts about MS. My dad has MS. It affects everybody differently. And... Andrea described it as the snowflake disease. It absolutely is. You cannot have two people who have been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in the same room saying, yeah, well, here's when I got that. Oh, yeah, okay, I got that six months later. And then you'll get this at this time. And that's not the way it goes. It affects bodies entirely differently. And it makes it a major challenge. But there are a number of... I don't know if we can call them breakthroughs yet, but there's been a lot of science in behind this that is starting to have a lot of impact. There are a lot of trials that have been run. So there are a lot of things to hopefully look forward to in the future. Let's take a break. Visit mssociety.ca for more information if you would like to take part in the MS bike because 
it, it's time to accomplish something, right? We've been sitting around for so long to think, I could jump on a bike, I could ride 75K one day, and I can ride back 75K. Or maybe even to think to yourself, there's no way I could do that, but I'm going to give it a shot. And then be able to pull it off. That gets us up and out of the house, that's for sure. We've been sitting and we've been locked in for too long. Now you get an opportunity to do this. Find out more at mssociety.ca. Okay. Well, Mano, how's the day going? It's going good. It's a beautiful uh, summer's day in Ontario. And a summer's day under the Ontario flag, which I still, and we just talked about this, I still think if you gave people a multiple choice test and threw up a couple of provincial flags, I think people would struggle to pick out Ontario's. I really, really do. Which brings us to the discussion that you have kind of kicked off. Tell us what led to you even bringing this up. It's it's numerous things. I mean, on a personal basis, I, I love flags. I'm the person, I'm the weird person who can pick flags and tell you which flags are wrong in a TV show. Um, but at the same time, it's the conversation we've been having about decolonization, reconciliation, um, and it, this flag just creates a lot of dissonance for me. You know, at minimum, a flag has to be distinct and inclusive. This is not distinct. This is not inclusive. Uh, and you're quite right. If you search Ontario flag on Google, one of the suggested questions you get that other people have asked is, why do Ontario and Manitoba have the same flag and they don't, but they're so similar? <laughs> well, they both have kind of the Union Jack emblem up in the top left corner. They're both on a red base, but they do have a little different item that is included so when you look at at changing this i mean it's it's one thing to say hey you know what maybe maybe we need to look at this it's another thing to come forward and say let's do it so what you know what do you think we need to do in order to make this discussion as fruitful as possible I think we need to focus on the fact that uh, Ontario and Canada are their own nation, have been their uh, other own cultures, and Canada has been its own nation for a very long time. Um, the original uh, kind of 1965 uh, change of the Canadian flag by Pearson, that was prompted by the fact that Canada was act- acting as a peacekeeping force during the Suez crisis, uh, and the Egyptian uh, government refused to understand that Canada was distinct from Britain, with which it had a conflict, because, of course, the Canadians came in flying the Union Jack in the Canton. Um, and, and that came from a different part of our history. At this time, I think Canada is very much a distinct nation. Ontario is not an outpost of the British Empire, which has not existed for a while. And we just need to move on. I also see it as a litmus test of our seriousness about the future of our, of our society. You know, we have a lot of words being spoken about reconciliation and inclusion. And if we're not even able to take this one minor step towards making a symbolic commitment to actually having a, a different society, then I, I'm sorry to say we have no credibility when we talk about reconciliation or inclusion or any of those uh, very nice words. 
Matt Omajumda joining us as we look at Ontario's flag, something, again, people struggle to even pick out when it's next to Manitoba's flag or even in a collection of other flags. And yet, people will get very passionate about it when you bring up, hey, why don't we talk about maybe making a change? Mano, what kind of reaction have you had so far? Well, I've had uh, I've had an incredibly uh, positive reaction, and 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 I have to say, I'm just, I'm just so happy to see so many people want to talk about flags because normally it's a very lonely world out there if you're into flags. Um, about 120 people have signed a petition. It's only been uh, 12 days. This was launched on uh, candidate. Uh, I just think I'm just curious to see where this goes. I encourage people to please, uh, you know, sign the petition and share the petition forward. You never know who in your uh, who in your circles loves to talk about flags. Where do we find it? You find it on change.org. Um, I'll be able to, sorry, just give me uh, one second here. I'll be able to provide you with the short link. So it's change.org slash Ontario hyphen flag. Okay, change.org slash Ontario hyphen flag. You've made it easy for us. You have started the discussion. I love the discussion. Mano, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of the history behind both the flag and this discussion. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That is our conversation with Mano Majumdar, who has started a discussion. And that's what this needs to be, you know, We tend to say, I know exactly what's going on. I've read the headline. I've heard someone say four words. I know what they're getting at. And that's not necessarily the case. So when we look at Ontario's flag, I don't know too many people who have an incredible passion for Ontario's flag. Do you? Passion for the Canadian flag? Yes. But flying the provincial flag, that's usually reserved for government buildings, and not even all government buildings. So when it comes to Ontario's flag, if we look at it, picture it, it is red background, and then you have the Union Jack in the top left corner, and then you also have uh, you know, the, the emblem of Ontario. Manitoba's flag, very similar. A lot of people would confuse Manitoba's flag and Ontario's flag. In fact, I mean, here's, here's a thing you can do online. You can go and try and take a quiz and match each flag with each province. I don't know how many people would pass. And yet, when you say, oh, we've got to change, or maybe we should consider changing, or, hey, how about we talk about changing, people will get really, really, really upset. And I don't understand that because we are looking at a province that has come an awfully long way from when that flag was first introduced. And Mano is somebody who is very well-educated in flags. As he says, it's strange hearing other people talk so much about flags because it's not normally something that the people weigh in on. Well, here's your opportunity. Is it time for a discussion to look and say, why not? Why don't we unveil a new Ontario flag, while we're talking about things like reconciliation, while we're looking at what this province stands for. Because over the pandemic, we've had an opportunity to do what? Look and say, why is that done that way? And if the only answer is, because that's the way it's always been done, then you need to have a discussion. And with Ontario's flag, I think that's where we sit. 
Why does Ontario's flag look that way? I don't know. It's the way it's always looked. Does it really signify what this province is all about? I don't know. It's a flag. Could we do better? It's not aesthetically pleasing. Does the Union Jack truly need to be there? Union Jack's not in Quebec's flags, not in many flags, provincially. It's in Manitoba's, and just so you know, Manitoba has had these exact conversations that when it comes time for their 150th, they maybe will look at changing their flag. It's time to talk data. We have been talking about a number of things for a very long time now with Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Center at Queen's University. And he joins us now. Dr. Cook, how's Monday? A good Monday so far. A lot of renovations going on in my place. So it's <laughs> nice to see some progress. But uh, this has been a good start to the week. Mike, how's your week going? Well, not too bad. Do you have a microphone in one hand and a paintbrush or a screwdriver, perhaps a hammer in the other hand? I did. They took that stuff away from me because it clearly wasn't helping. <laughs> I'm good at, can you hand me that? And I, I can usually, you know, with a couple of tries, find it, hand it over and have someone take it and make better use of it. Yeah, that's that's me. <laughs> My wife. Can I run and get you a coffee? That's also me <laughs> when it comes to fixing things. That I can excel at. Otherwise, not so much. Well, you have always excelled at helping us to figure out things that would seem very straightforward, but sometimes have little underlying pieces of information that we need to know about. I remember attending a conference a long time ago where they were singing the praises of healthcare systems in Europe, certainly in the UK, and they were looking at, okay, what things could we do here that they do there that could make our system better? And there were a number of different ideas, and I don't know how many of those actually were put in place. But something from the U.K. has caught our eye, and it is general practice data for planning and research, which was going to come into effect in England on July the 1st, and then didn't, and it would appear to, you know, be pushing their healthcare system into the future. But all of a sudden, it, it it didn't happen. What is going on here, in that something that seems pretty simplistic didn't get put into place? It's really interesting that we're talking about this, Mike. I, I think with everything that's happened in the course of the last year and change with COVID, of course. There are numerous federal jurisdictions around the planet, as you had identified, that are indeed thinking about the value of the data that we have in our healthcare system. Most of the data that is available to these different jurisdictions is, you know, being thought about in terms of how it might enable some predictive analytics, some new ways of studying and thinking and intervening uh, to stop something like the pandemic, but of course to start looking towards the future for perhaps finding a cure for cancer. So I think what's happened in the last year is that people are really starting to take the question seriously of what do we do with all this data. So what's happening in, in the UK with the National Health Service is that actually if we can rewind even just six weeks or so, the NHS had uh, publicly announced that they're going to be selling 
about 1.1 or so million health records. And, and these are health data records that are produced through uh, surgery. So if you could imagine you are brought into a hospital, you're triaged, if you're told you need to go in for a certain kind of operation, there's going to be a number of forms that are filled in about you, you going through this process. And then there's going to be charts and different things that are filled out after the surgery. And if you can think about the collective of all this data, Mike, you're going to be seeing things that refer to the actual procedure itself, but also a number of other fields of data included as well. Uh, for example, notes on the general health of the body, notes on sexual orientation even, notes on birth date, potentially notes on ethnicity or race. Uh, there will definitely be notes on gender. And so what ended up happening was after the NHS had announced that they were going to be selling this data, a bunch of privacy groups actually representing doctors had come back and said, well, hold on a second. There could be a number of ethical issues here. Maybe we should hit the brakes and, and have an actual public conversation about what it means to sell health data based upon people's surgeries and all of this other kind of demographic and health-related data that inevitably comes with it too, Mike. Now, one of the things that they weren't going to do was sell, say, you know, Terrence Smith's data. It, it wasn't going to be labeled as this person here, this is their name, this is... They were going to keep things pretty, you know, pretty unknown, weren't they? Or, or could they even promise that? No, they can't promise it, but they are. So the idea is to anonymize it. So instead of sending in Mike Stubbs' surgery record, your name, your your well, your DOB would probably stay, let's be honest. Um, your DOB would probably stay, but your name would be removed. Maybe your health card number. So these are, are general attempts that we see all over the place in the world, Mike. The jurisdictions take these kinds of steps to uh, ensure anonymity and by doing that protect the individual's privacy. Because the idea here is that by making all of this data available, if it's anonymous, what you're positioning different sectors or different industries in the world to do is study the health of a population. Not the health of an individual, but if you can use that data at a larger level, you can approach the human being as a species who may have certain kinds of illnesses that could be treated if you think about the body populace as akin to something existing inside of a petri dish so yes to a certain extent they're looking to anonymize and protect individuals but that's not possible to do once you start aggregating other data sets together it's very very easy to reverse engineer who somebody is when you can tell their sexual orientation, their general health of their body, what kind of procedures they've had, whether or not they are physically disabled, mentally impaired. There's all sorts of ways in which this can be reverse engineered, so I don't think that's possible. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. Still, Dr. Cook, just from from a personal account, I'm somebody that if I could walk through a doorway that went whoosh, whoosh at the beginning of every day and had it scan me for whatever, and that information was sent off somewhere and analyzed, I'm all in. You know, if you can tell me that I am predisposed to this condition, even it's, if it, it is because of, you know, my background or whatever it happens to be, 
I, I don't mind knowing. I In fact, I want to know that. Isn't there something in there, in this collection of data, that we could look at and say, okay, yeah, there are privacy concerns, but the greater good, Dr. Cook, the greater good, how about them? I imagine you listening in your car right now or at your home office or even you, Mike, are going to know exactly what I'm going to say. <laughs> It's a privileged position to simply say that I, white man, does not mind walking through a machine that will take my data and then make my lived experience better. If we change the situation and we think about a Muslim woman walking through that scanner, somebody had, who had just been subjected to the violence, the terrorism, put forth by Veltman on the Muslim community. How you relate to technology, how you relate to your data, how you relate to your data subject that you can't see and access, how you relate to security frameworks, how you relate to the general population around you at all times is vastly different than the way you and I do it. And so what we need to be doing is thinking about the already existing inequities related to data around us and data practices to see of the ways in which predictive analytics, artificial intelligence, or machine learning might be making those inequities more visible and potentially making them worse. Will this exist in healthcare? It already does. We see very clearly the way in which health data in Canada is picked up by the CBSA and it is parsed to make security interventions on who should and should not be entering the U.S. or coming back to Canada. So. This is a completely different rabbit hole. It's a very important one, and I suspect the UK will need to have this conversation, but they probably aren't yet. So in the future, Mike, I think you and I should have a chat about this. I think it would be really, really productive, and I hope that the UK is realizing this as well right now. Well, you bring up an excellent point, because to put it into a perspective like that, you have to understand what it's like to walk in everybody's shoes. And if you're not able to look at it from that perspective man you're going to miss a lot and it sounds like maybe it's it's not a bad idea that they put the pause button on this they've said in the uk maybe september 1st do you imagine that's to give them time to have discussions like the one you are referring to oh yeah absolutely that's precisely what they're doing mike you're absolutely right the whole idea is to bring the public into consult as is typical in that system in the UK, especially with the NHS, decisions are made by interpreting what is best for the population without usually talking to the population itself. And by having that conversation, Mike, you have civil society actors and representatives therein come to the front and say, you haven't thought about this yet. Let's have a conversation. We haven't thought about this border implication that tends to focus on a certain kind of ethnicity or religion. Let's have a conversation about it. There has been this case in the past, even if it's hypothetical, about so-and-so social minorities that ended up in a bind. And that conversation still has not happened at a federal level, but it matters in these ways. So those are the kinds of things that we're going to see in the near future, I think, especially in the UK. And frankly, those are the, the kinds of conversations that we need to be paying attention to, because when we do, we're going to be able to look back here at home and see if those kinds of things are happening as well. And if we can do that, we can move toward 
the usage of health data and predictive analytics systems to the benefit of the population, but knowing where the gaps and blind spots are first and not last. So well said. Like I pointed out, you're going to be able to tell us about all of the little things in behind the scenes that make a big difference if you're going to make a big decision like this. Dr. Cook, we appreciate that. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It's always my pleasure. Have a great week, London. That is Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.